Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. Well, thank you for having me, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, as we were walking in, we were talking about uh, Latin. So I've been teaching, try, helping teach my third grader Latin. So she's in classical education. And on her flashcards, one of the words, and we were debating how this is pronounced, waco or voco. Yeah, so we were, we were debating on how this is pronounced. But uh, that's how we get the word vocation. So... Um, vocation, I was trying to explain to her what a vocation is, and it's kind of a, a calling, but a divine calling. So what God has prepared for you in your life, whether that's to be married or to be single or to live the religious life. Um, or uh, maybe it's even in your profession that that's not really separate from your vocation. So I'm a neurologist, and I, I consider that part of my vocation, caring for others. I remember when I uh, first started, like my very first day being a doctor, I, uh, I was at the VA hospital, and I went up to see my very first patient, and the chief resident, I didn't, the hospital was kind of complicated, so he walked me to where the room was, and I stood outside the room, and then he said, okay, get on in there, and I just kind of continued to stand there, uh, very nervous about entering this vocation, okay, that, that I had this solemn responsibility. And I remember even as a medical student, Matthew 25, starting in verse 35, always came to mind when I thought about being a doctor. And that's Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these brothers, you have done it to me. And that always uh, resonated with me as a entering into residency, that it was this solemn responsibility to care for people and to care for them well. So I stood out the room longer than I thought, and the chief resident circled back around again. He's like, what are you still doing out here? <laughs> you know. So I, I finally entered the room and actually told the patient that, hey, it's my first day being a doctor, and you're my first ever patient, which was just, like, terrifying to him probably, <laughs> right? So, um, so, like, early, you know, being a doctor early, it's all sorts of things. I mean, you, you're everything you're doing is, is like for the first time for a long time, right? So I remember someone came in and they had 
a lot of swelling in their abdomen. They had cirrhosis. So you get what's called ascites, and you build up all this fluid in your abdomen. And I'm an intern. It's like my first week. I'm doing nights. And I'm the, there's no staff in the hospital. It's just a bunch of residents. And this person has so much fluid in their abdomen that their diaphragm is being compressed, so they're having difficulty breathing. And the nurse says, this patient needs a paracentesis, which is when you put a catheter in the abdomen and drain out fluid, right? But I, I didn't know how to do that. So I, just, I had to just look up a video on how to do this procedure. And then I just walked in with a bunch of buckets, uh, you know, these uh, one liter each, and some catheters, and just went at it. And, you know, I filled up like four liters, and he was feeling much better. And then two weeks ago, two weeks later, he comes in again, same problem, and I'm on again. So I do it a second time. He goes, boy, that, you did a lot better the second time. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, it was my first time doing it. So, um, so yeah, you kind of learn. Now I'm in this position where I'm a neurologist. Um, I'm the head of our department. Uh, I, I'm responsible for patients. I'm responsible for uh, the other neurologists, you know, everyone that we have employed. And it's this big responsibility, how to take care of patients. I see patients that in the field of neurology, they're always losing capacities. So they get a disease in which they lose some function or some capacity, whether it be to speak or to walk or to do these other types of things, right? And they often feel marginalized because of this. So society puts a lot of emphasis on what we can do, our capacities, how we can contribute. So when patients can no longer do that, they often feel marginalized. So it draws these bigger questions. You know, what does it mean to be a human person? What grounds human dignity? And then in the hospital, we see so much suffering. So you know, why do we suffer? How do we care for people who are suffering? So I want to start with um, talking about what a human person is. And uh, as the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. So that's what we're going to talk about. So I, sometimes it's easier, like with St. Thomas, he, he talks about what God is not, which helps us understand God, right? Sometimes it's helpful when we talk about humans as well to talk about what they are not, okay? So the first thing I'd like to say that we're not is the human person is not a soul or a mind. It's not to say that we don't have a soul or mind, but we're not identical to that. So... Um, I think uh, it was Rene Descartes. There were substance dualists before Rene Descartes, such as Plato. But Rene Descartes uh, really made this popular. When people think of substance dualism, uh, that we have uh, kind of this, these two different substances. We have a, a body, this mechanical thing, and we have a soul, okay, which is non-spatial. Uh, it's not made of any parts. There's these two very different substances that somehow interact with each other. That's often the common conception of, of kind of what a human person is. So substance dualism. Um, with Descartes, he saw these psychological attributes, so things like um, love and sensations, pain, uh, hunger, things like this, right? And he attributed those psychological attributes to uh, an immaterial soul, okay? Um, and then anything that's quantitative, that can be defined mathematically and such, gets attributed to the body. So you have these two radically different substances that somehow interact. And for Descartes, 
what makes us us is really our soul or mind, that the human person is really a mind. But there's a, there's a lot of problems with, with this view. So I can't go through all of them. There's the interaction problem, and there's many other problems, but just some of them to talk about. Uh, one of them is called a myria, the muriological fallacy. So this is where we attribute or ascribe um, an attribute to a part that only makes sense of a whole. So here's a, a quote by Bennett and Hacker. They say, a person is not identical with his mind. A mind is something a person is said to have, not to be. And having a mind, a person, has a distinctive range of capacities. It is not the mind that is the subject to psychological attributes any more than it is the brain. It is the living human being, the whole animal, not one of its parts or a subset of its powers. It is not my mind that makes up its mind or decides. It is not my mind that calls something to mind and recollects. And it is not my mind that turns its mind to something or other and thinks. It is I, this person. Hence, too, the mind is not a causal agent that brings about changes in the body and its limbs by its actions. On the contrary, it is the human being that deliberates, decides, and acts, not their mind. Okay, so, um, so we have a mind. You can't be identical to uh, something you possess. Okay, so the human being transcends even that. I think there's also some ethical implications that Descartes wouldn't hold. Descartes was a, was a Catholic. Um, but I think there are some implications. If, if I'm a mind and other people are, are minds and they're really a soul, then the body is kind of part of this mechanical world. It's something out there, um, something separate from the person, right? And I think that leads to sometimes seeing people, um, their bodies as objects. So there's a good book here, The, the Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favalli. And I think this is a good um, illustration. She says, as I stand here typing out these thoughts, an image springs to mind plucked from the archives of recent memories. I'm on a plane that has just landed, queuing up in the aisle with all the other passengers. Just in front of me is a gray-haired man, likely in his 60s, booting up his cell phone like everyone else. Instead of jumping to text or email, he opens up a dating app. I use the word dating, but of course, that's a euphemism. He's scrolling for sex. Women's faces flash across his phone screen. He swipes most of them away with barely a glance, unbelievably quickly. I'm peering shamelessly over his shoulder, unnoticed, and so I see them too. Woman after woman, face after face, some smiling brightly, others tentatively. Hopefully, some, um, smiling, hopefully, some attempting gestures of seduction with lip pouts and glimpses of skin. He pauses only on the faces that are young, half his age, pressing a button with his thumb to file those women away for later. I think about each woman as her face flicks by. I think about her desire for love, for companionship, to be seen, to be known, to be looked upon with adoration and respect. What woman, what human doesn't want these things? We are made for love. That is always what we seek. As I watch this man filing through dozens of faces, I feel a slow eruption of rage and disgust in my belly that reaches up into my throat. He is not seeing these women as persons. He is assessing them hastily as potential outlets for his appetites, like scouring a drive through menu for that burger that will hit the spot. His gestures are callous yet, but also frantic, compulsive. We're not even off the plane after all, and he's already trolling for prey like a shark circling endlessly, unable to stop moving. 
He is not in control. He is being controlled. Just as his lust obscures the personhood of the faces on the screen, so it also diminishes his own humanity. In making objects of these women, he has made an animal out of himself. So when we see a person as an object out there, we, can, we kind of abstract away the person and we just see their body rather than seeing them as a unity of body and soul. Um, so there's also challenges in my own field to Descartes' position, so in neuroscience. There's this long history that I won't go through, I do it in other talks, where neuroscience, if we talk about these psychological attributes, um, wisdom, love, um, caring for people, all of these types of things, um, we now, uh, as in the neurosciences, we think that we can localize these things to the brain. So if you name any type of psychological attribute, you can just point to it on a scan and say, there it is, right? It doesn't need to be in this immaterial substance. It's right there, right? So that makes uh, it seem as though the immaterial mind is superfluous. And as being a neurologist, it is very difficult to see someone as two different substances, right? So for example, when I see someone with brain damage, we see mind damage with it. And when we see brain death, that is definition, the definition of brain death is also the definition of the death to the person, even if their heart is still going in their other organs, they would still be considered dead, right? So it's easy when you do neurology for a long time to start seeing a person as their brain, okay? That the person is identical to their brain. So a lot of neuroscientists would think this, right? Um, a lot of neurologists in my field would think this just because it's constantly reinforced in the neuro ICU, right? And that often leads uh, both philosophers and neuroscientists to what's called physicalism, that the human person is purely physical. So like I said, we had those kind of psychological attributes that Descartes attributed to uh, the soul or the mind. And now neuroscience is saying we can attribute those same psychological attributes to the brain, making the mind superfluous. It's no longer needed. It's, a, it's an extra hypothesis. It's just not needed anymore. We, we've explained this, right? Um, so the human person is really identical to their brain. Is that, is that true? I want to say, no, it's not true, okay? Um, and I can't go through all those reasons, but there are multiple problems with it. So if we think about the characteristics of physical things... Well, they can be measured, right? They're quantitative. They take up space. So they take up space and they have, they have volume. They're completely objective. So they have, you can fully describe a physical thing in purely third-person terms, okay? And they're determined. So um, as I'm talking to you right now, areas of my brain uh, are becoming more active. And I have these, um, I want to say certain things and I have these action potentials that are firing, right? But my action potentials that are firing along axons, they're not intending to do anything. They're just happening, right? They, they have no intention, at least with a mechanistic worldview. So when we think about mental states, however, it's very different. They're qualitative, right? So when we go to dinner tonight, there's a certain taste and smell to the food. Right? It's qualitative. It's, it's not purely quantitative. When we think about people, they're subjects, right? Um, we can't fully explain a human person 
in third-person terms. I can know every physical fact about a human being and not really know them at all, right? Okay. Um, it's like in marriage, your spouse continues to become more mysterious to you <laughs> as you're married, right? Um, and if I had an exhaustive knowledge of every physical fact about my wife, I still may not know her and she would still be mysterious to me, okay? So there's something over and above the physical. Further, we have intentionality. So as physical things are determined by the laws of nature, uh, human beings, however, uh, we have these intentional acts. So I guess I intend to give you this message as a purpose behind it and all of this. We also have free will. So in a mechanistic world, it's very hard to think about how there would be free will, right? Everything would be determined by its physical antecedent. But human beings have free will. We can decide, we can choose, we can deliberate. We can pick and choose what is best and then in an act of the will pursue what is best, right? But these are not characteristics of physical things, okay? And there's many more things like uh, the idea of forming a concept. Um, If I have an image of a big man and an image of a small man, the image of the big man is bigger than that of the small man. But the concept big man is not any bigger than the concept of small man. There's no size to a concept at all. But every physical thing is quantitative, but concepts aren't, right? So uh, there's multiple kind of characteristics about being human, capacities that we have, that cannot be reduced to the physical, okay? There's a lot more to say about that, but that's sufficient uh, for now. Okay, so for two things to be identical, they have to share all the same properties. Human beings have qualitative, subjective, and intentional properties. Matter does not have these properties, so we cannot be purely material. Further, things cannot give what they don't have. So um, what's um, in the effect must be in the cause, right? So um, if there's nothing subjective in matter, and human beings have subjectivity, it could not have come from just matter, okay? Unless matter had subjectivity. Okay, which on a mechanistic worldview, it does not, okay? Further, I think, just like Descartes' position, it also falls into the muriological fallacy. So, as I'm talking to you right now, um, I search for the right words to say, and in doing so, I'm using my inferior left frontal gyrus to do this task, right? But it's not my left inferior frontal gyrus that's trying to find words. I am. Okay, and I use that. Um, It's not my fusiform gyrus that recognizes your faces, right? I recognize your faces. I saw you at mass today. I saw you at mass. So um, when uh, you broke off that relationship, that wasn't your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex that broke off that relationship. It was you, right? It's not your caudate nucleus that uh, you didn't break up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend because your caudate nucleus wasn't depolarizing like it once did, right? Um, so it's, it's silly when we try to reduce the human being to their physical constituents. And further, it has ethical implications. So um, I take care of, uh, less so now because I just work in the hospital, but when I did clinic, I took care of a lot of Uh, individuals who have intellectual disabilities, some of them profound intellectual disabilities. Um, So I took care of this young lady who has Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which is an intractable form of epilepsy. 
And when I first met her, she was having over a thousand seizures a day. A thousand seizures a day. Just as I was talking to her, just brief seizures, but just throughout the entire day. She was nonverbal, couldn't communicate, uh, you know, verbally in any way. Um, you know, over our lifespan, when we're very young, we lack certain capacities. Some people will continue to lack those capacities throughout their whole lifespan. And then as we age, we start to lose capacities again, right? But during that entire time from being an embryo to our last breath, we remain fully human, right? Um, But if we start to think of the person just as their brain and their capacities, then we're going to dehumanize people, right? So there are dangers in reduction. Anytime someone says a human being is nothing but X, Y, or Z, there's a danger there because equality cannot be found in that, okay? When we look at something like a beautiful painting, no one looks at a beautiful painting and says, well, that's, you know, that's just like a Rembrandt. That's just a bunch of brush strokes, right? It's just a bunch, and, and describe the, the chemical composition of the inks and, no, you, you, you know, it'd be, you'd be laughed at, right? But for some reason, we think that this is okay to do that to humans who are created in the image of God, right? How much more are we worth in a painting, right? Okay, so a human person is neither purely material nor are we purely immaterial. We straddle this kind of, in this um, kind of hierarchy, um, the chain of being, the, the medievals use that term, the chain of being, where kind of God is at the top. You have, you know, these objects like rocks and stones and things at the bottom, And you have, you know, humans are kind of, we straddle kind of between our animal friends and the angels. And we we kind of, we straddle these two worlds of the material and the immaterial. So how do we explain this? How do I explain this as a neurologist? So if you consider me speaking to you right now, well, there's the material causes of me speaking to you right now, right? So um, my left inferior frontal gyrus, my supplementary motor cortex, um, my cortical bulbar tract and various cranial nerves and the firing of my vocal cords, the movement of my tongue and all of these things. These are the material causes of me speaking to you. But that's not sufficient to really explain my speaking to you, right? So you could add the efficient cause, that which brings about an action. So we would talk about something like the electrical activity in those neurons and blood flow and things like that. And that would be the efficient cause of what's happening. But that still doesn't really describe my speaking to you. So then we have to talk about, well, what are my thoughts and intentions? And what's the meaning behind what I'm saying? The intelligibility and the organization of the content. My ability to unify concepts. This is what we refer to as the formal cause of me speaking to you. It's that which organizes, unifies, and makes intelligible my speech. It's the shape and contour, so to speak, of how I'm speaking to you. And this is a real aspect of my being. It reflects my rational nature, specifically my intellect. We can also talk about the final cause. What is the purpose of me speaking to you? Okay. And this reflects my rational nature as well, specifically my will. This single act of speaking to you entails four aspects, the material, the efficient, the formal, and the final cause. 
And this is not the interaction of two substances contra Descartes. Rather, this is four aspects of one event happening in one substance, polypenna, in which there are both corporeal and incorporeal components. Okay? Um, this gets to a view that Aristotle, uh, you know, Aristotle kind of came up with this hylomorphism, and Aquinas takes the work of Aristotle, right, and, and kind of expands upon them. And um, you could go into that, and you could have a lecture on that. It's, it's fascinating that all things are composed of form and matter, uh, right? Um, it's a fascinating. Uh, it seemed so bizarre to me when I first heard it years ago. I said, that, that can't be true. But as I've investigated and learned about it and applied it to neuroscience, it, it actually has uh, helped me tremendously um, uh, in, in not just these abstract ways, but how I view my patients, okay? Um, so, um, so these concepts of human dignity. So we kind of talked about like what a human person is not, okay? And then we talked about kind of this view of maybe the human person in a hylomorphism that we're a form matter composite, okay? And we have this rational nature. And this has a long history, but so concepts of human dignity, they come from examining our nature. So what's distinct about being human? So Aristotle saw it as humans are rational animals. And Boethius picks up on this as well. He says a human is an individual substance of a rational nature. Augustine, too, picks up on this. Man's excellent cons excellence consists in the fact that God made him in his own image by giving him a rational soul, which raises him above the beasts of the field. So when we read Genesis 1.27... So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Many understand this as being created in the image of God is very much tied to our rational nature. Okay? And this plays a role in our dignity. But some would object, well, what does this mean about someone that can't display rationality? So if we t talk about... Uh, my patient with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And granted, I don't actually know her interior life. It may well be much, much richer than my own. I don't know. But if we say that maybe there's no evidence here of, of rationality, so does that mean that, that, we, that she doesn't have the same dignity that I have? But this is important, again, in kind of Thomistic terms to understand the difference between potentiality and actuality, that this is someone who has... Uh, a rational soul, but these potentials cannot be actualized because of the material uh, constituents are either damaged or immature. But that rational soul still exists. It's still there. She's still created in the image of God and has this profound dignity, right? Um, and the same would be said for an embryo. An embryo is not a potential human being. It's a human being with potential, right? And this has profound implications. Okay. But another objection, and this one I agree with, um, this is from Peter Colosi in A Witness to Catholic Healthcare, I believe. He says, no one upon meeting a new friend or falling in love declares, guess what? Today I met another functioning intellect, or I met a free will. No, they say, today I met a person. So as a human person, I have a, I have a will and I have an intellect, but I'm not identical to those things. Colosi goes on to discuss the development of this concept of the human person and their dignity through an emphasis. Um, he kind of draws on 
John Paul II, and he, he draws on um, Pope Benedict XVI. So Pope John Paul II um, really emphasized the uniqueness and unrepeatability of each person as tying into their kind of infinite worth and their dignity. Okay? They accepted the rational. I mean, they weren't saying that the rational thing was wrong. It's just it was something that needed to be developed. Uh, Pope Benedict really emphasized that human beings are in relation. So we think about the, the Trinity as a relation of three persons and one God, that human beings being created in the image of God are also in relation with other human beings, and that too is part of our dignity. So our dignity, um, when we look at Genesis, it entails a lot, okay? So in conclusion on this section, we are not a soul, we're not a brain, we're not a set of capacities or functions. The human person really cannot be reduced to anything non-personal, and a human person really cannot be reduced. We're irreducible. Aquinas says um, in the Summa Theologiae, um, Prima Pars, question 29, article 3. Now, he's talking about God and the word person, but he said person signifies what is most perfect in all of nature. Okay? And in Matthew 25, which I read earlier, we kind of see that um, in each person who's created in the image of God, that, that's why when we say, like, what we have done for the least of these brothers, you know, you have done for me, okay? Because you've done it for Christ, right? Okay. So all of that encompasses the human, dig- you know, the dignity of the human person. And this has profound implications on how I care for patients, right? Like I said, our patients are gaining and losing capacities. Um, again, some are nonverbal. Um, some um, were healthy and tragedy struck suddenly, a traumatic brain injury, a, a large stroke, a hemorrhage, a brain tumor. Um, but yeah, you know, the human person, they're not their brain. Um, they're not their intellects. Uh, the human person is irreducible. And this um, is, is why we treat people uh, with respect. And what we do for the least of these patients, uh, I'm doing for Christ. Okay. All right. So um, another part of that is, you know, Aquinas does give all these arguments for um, the immateriality of the intellect and the human soul. And it's important, too, like as a doctor, um, everyone eventually is going to die, right? Um, That's just true of of all of us. And a lot of neurological diseases are fatal, ALS, um, even uh, Alzheimer's disease, many forms of dementia, right? So um, when a person is kind of losing these capacities, it's important to understand that I can still minister to their soul. That uh, things are physically corrupted because they're made of parts. Things fall apart. That's what it means to be physically corrupted. But the soul has no parts. Uh, The soul survives the death of the body. So there's always room as a doctor uh, to be ministering to people as part of my vocation, even when I cannot bring about physical healing, right? And this idea of form and matter, this seems so abstract, has such incredible implications on on how we treat people, okay? Um, I remember there was was a woman who I saw who, you know, she had a terminal illness, and she was also just suffering from severe depression, and she was in her 80s, 
And she was a, previously she was Catholic. She hadn't gone to mass in, in maybe years, maybe decades or something. She's kind of, you know, just gave up on the faith through illness, through depression, but just no longer related to the Catholic faith. faith. And she was nearing the end of her life, but she was still physically and mentally well. So I encouraged her to go back to Mass. I said, go, you know, go back to Mass. Um, you, you can't do the things you once wanted to do, but I want you to go back to Mass. So uh, I, I never heard from her again, you know. I never heard from her. Um, I got a letter from her daughter months later that, that she died. And the, the letter said that she listened. She went back to Mass. She joined a woman's prayer group. Um, and those last months were some of the richest, most meaningful months of her life. Um, so it's just kind of this profound idea of what the human person is that kind of directs how we care for them, right? Okay. So if we switch over to suffering, which has much to do with, with human dignity, um, I noticed that in the hospital as a doctor, I'm surrounded by people who are suffering, right? Uh, physically, emotionally, uh, patients, uh, the spouses of patients who are dealing with grief at the loss of a loved one. Um, I know, like, you know, one of the worst parts of my job is I have to declare brain death. And sometimes it's often tragic. It's, it's often traumatic brain injury or massive sudden hemorrhage or something. And sometimes it's in the prime of someone's life and the family is just devastated, right? So there's this, like, deep suffering that you see in the hospital on a daily basis, surrounded by it. So I wanted to talk about that. It seems sometimes, uh, if you're a physician or a healthcare worker, there can seem this kind of incompatibility between our idea of God and how profoundly people suffer. So we believe that God is all-knowing, that he's aware of all suffering, that he's all-loving, he's perfectly good, right? And that he's all-powerful. And when we think about those attributes and we think about suffering, there seems to be a problem that emerges. And this is called the logical problem of suffering. It goes something like this. This would be kind of in the style of like Epicurus and J.L. Mackey, who's a 20th century, who was a 20th century philosopher, goes like this. Premise one, God is perfectly good so it eliminate evil as far as he could. Premise two, further, God is all-powerful, omnipotent, and there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do. But now a problem arises. In God's goodness, he desires to eliminate evil, and in his power, he can do so. Therefore, evil shouldn't exist, yet it does. So it seems a perfectly good and omnipotent God does not exist. So it seems like a powerful argument, right? Um, and it can be a powerful argument, even if it's at a subconscious level, to physicians and nurses and family members who are, who are caring for those who are suffering. But I think there are some errors in this, right? So uh, two of them. And uh, here I, I work a little bit on, or I, I use a little bit of the work of Ed Fazer, or maybe a lot of it, actually. I should say a lot of it. Um, so there's a couple problems. Number one, it's not correct to say there's no limit to what an omnipotent being can do. So God can do what's consistent with his nature. But if someone accuses God of lacking power because he can't make a four-sided triangle, that would be absurd. 
or accusing God of lacking in power because he can't make four plus four equal five, right? Um, nonsense attributed to God remains nonsense, right? Nonsense is not an attribute of God, okay? So it so happens, however, that certain goods can only exist given that certain evils exist. So could there be such a thing as forgiveness if there was no wrongdoing, right? So I, in the end of life, I see families coming together again. There was deep pain throughout childhood and all these things, but now their mother is dying. And there's this incredible forgiveness at the end of life those, um, because of those wrongdoings. Uh, people get terrible diagnosis, a terrible diagnosis, um, danger lurks. And because of this, they grow in courage, right? And they teach others how to be courageous. Suffering, like I said, people surrounding me uh, who are suffering, but it helps me grow and their caregivers in compassion. Could there be such a thing as sacrifice without the loss of a good, right? So these are things that we see that um, kind of their counterparts are necessary. So God may not, this is, links to the second problem, God may not eliminate evil as far as he could if he has sufficient reasons to permit evil, okay? So perhaps he wants people who are forgiving, courageous, compassionate, who can sacrifice. So if we look at some quotes, so St. Augustine, since God is the highest good, he would not allow any evil to exist in his works unless his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring good even out of evil. From St. Thomas, this is part of the infinite goodness of God that he should allow evil to exist and out of it produce good. And then this is a biblical answer as well. When we think of uh, Joseph being sold into slavery, I think it's Genesis 50, chapter, uh, chapter 50, verse 20. But he says, I forgot to put the, the verse, but I have the quote. He says, um, you to his brothers who threw him into slavery, you intended evil against me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Uh, so we find some answers there, but is this satisfying? No, I, I don't think it is. If I gave this talk to someone who's in their hospital bed, it's, that's not going to be satisfying, right? But um, it can be satisfying from this vantage point as we talk about it and prepare for our own suffering to have that larger perspective. So another problem arises, and it's called the evidential problem of evil. And we see this as well. So if God permits evil and directs it towards a greater good, then he's pointing that evil to a greater good. So there can be no pointless evil, right? So if God exists, there's no pointless evil. There is pointless evil, therefore God doesn't exist. So this would be another, um, another way of, of thinking about this problem of evil. Okay. Um, and that's uh, William Rowe, another uh, philosopher from, I think, the 20th century, um, kind of uh, made this argument uh, more well-known. Okay, so if I think about the patient who had a 
who has Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, so using her as an example. Um, you know, does she, does God need to, you know, permit her to have a thousand seizures a day? Couldn't she just have 900 or 700 or 400? You know, why so many? Why does suffering have to be um, so extreme in some patients uh, or in some people that we love, right? Um, so it goes something like this. You'd say this is from Cohen and Spiegel, um, two modern-day philosophers. I cannot see an X, therefore there is no X. I cannot see a reason for suffering, therefore there is no reason for suffering, right? Okay, or in some particular suffering. So an example would be like if my daughter is like, Dad, can you get me the Cheerios out of the pantry? And the Cheerios are always in the pantry, and I go in, and there's no Cheerios. Then I can conclude, Catherine, we need to go to the grocery store and get some more Cheerios. We don't have any. I don't see the Cheerios, therefore there are no Cheerios, right? Okay, so that's what we're getting at. But is that always a good inference? If later in the day she says, Dad, I don't see a purpose in doing my homework. Therefore, there is no purpose in doing my homework. Is that a good inference? No, you know, of course it's not. Um, I remember when I used to do uh, EMG nerve conduction studies um, in residency, I would sometimes have to do them on children. An EMG nerve conduction study is where you electrocute nerves to test their physical parameters, like their velocity and amplitude to look for diseases of the nerves, like Guillain-Barre syndrome and such. And um, I remember having to do this in like six and seven-year-olds, right? It was awful. You know, they're just like screaming and crying, and you're electrocuting these children. They need to be awake for it. Um, You're putting needles in muscles to listen to the sounds of the muscles, right? There is no way that I could ever explain to that six-year-old that there is some greater good that's coming from this, okay? She's going to see that as completely pointless, right? She's going to protest and yell, and, and she should, right? This is terrible. But I know that there's this greater purpose in it, right? I'm doing the test, and I know the reasons that I'm doing it and that it's for her good. But there is this epistemic gap, this knowledge gap between the child and myself. I know what we're doing. She does not, and I cannot bridge that gap. Okay, by explaining it to her. Okay. But the knowledge gap, this epistemic epistemic gap between us and God is not finite, it's infinite, right? So if this child cannot understand my greater purpose, what makes us think that we're always going to know God's greater purpose, right? As the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 9. And this is uh, very much the answer that Job gets in um, Job chapter 39, where um, Jesus, or Jesus, uh, God speaks out of the whirlwind, right? Where were you when I did, where were you when I laid the foundation? You know, and, and just kind of gives him this tour of the cosmos, right? Where were you, Job? Just showing how wonderful his wisdom is and how Job, from his vantage point, just can't see it, Right? Okay, so if I think about my, my patient, my sweet patient with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and I reflect on her, so I can see some goods that, that come from it. So one, it, she's nonverbal, and when she has seizures, they're typically because of either she's entering in her, into her um, menstrual cycle or that she's constipated. And she can't speak, but these brief seizures alert her parents that something is going on, that she needs to be addressed. 
Number two, it brought her to me. Um, and she is almost seizure-free now. So, you know, we, uh, through changing her medications to me, listening to her parents, making adjustments, helping with constipation, all of these types of things, she's almost seizure-free. Okay, so there were indeed goods that came from it. Um, now, I'm not saying those, I can prove that those goods outweigh the bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I can see some goods that come from it. So uh, John Paul II says that suffering is present in the world in order to release love, in order to give birth to works of love towards neighbor, in order to transform the whole of human civilization into a civilization of love. When, I, when she enters into our office, everyone lights up. Everyone's happier. Everyone's day is better when she comes. Um, her parents are, have been transformed into saints in caring for her. Um, it is amazing to see the people that they are. And this isn't some type of utilitarian theory of like one must suffer so that the whole can benefit, right? That is not what we're saying here. That the idea here is that God loves and cares for her in a unique way. And that her suffering just doesn't benefit everyone else around her but that she too will benefit from this, that God is working in her to bring about something greater, okay? Okay, the second point is there's no reason to think that the greater good needs to be achieved in this life given we have eternal souls. In principle, infinite goodness in eternity would outweigh finite suffering on earth, infinitely so. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us according to St. Paul. Okay. So, still somewhat abstract. I still don't know if that would help my patients who are suffering, right? I can't explain things to them in syllogisms. Um, that would not go very far. Um, how about those who are suffering in the here and now? Those terrible waves of grief. So, um, I, you know, I, I've been through suffering in my life. And I've been through physical suffering. Um, and I've always said I could deal with physical suffering fairly well. Um, but grief, oh, you know, I've been through terrible grief in my life. And it's, it's just these unbelievable kind of waves that just hit you unexpectedly. Um, you'll be going along with your day and it's just, you just get swallowed up suddenly. Where did this come from? I wasn't even thinking about this, you know? And it just, it, it hits you. And it's just this, this existential suffering, right? It, it's, it's deep. And, and you'll see these, you know, in, in the Psalms, you know? Um, just just the, the Psalms of lament, right? So what about that kind of suffering? So, you know, I, I work at a Catholic hospital. And um, praise God, you know, it's... In every room, there's a crucifix, right? And it's this reminder, when I, when I look upon that crucifix, it's just a reminder of, of kind of the answer that Christ provides for our suffering. So when we talked about God permits evil and from it he brings about a greater good, is there any greater example than the cross, Right? That's the worst evil ever committed, right? 
Uh, we are made in the image of God, but we're not perfect images, right? Uh, but Jesus is the perfect image of his father. Um, and uh, we killed him, right? Uh, the worst evil ever, right? And what do we call that? We call that Good Friday, right? Um, from that evil came the greatest good, right? The greatest good. So the redemption of, of, of humans, right? Um, so we see Christ as, I think, a good example of the logical problem of suffering, okay? Evidence. Now, did it seem pointless um, at the time? Yeah, I bet it did to the disciples who had followed him, right? Um, yeah, that they, they had dedicated their lives to this, and they had this idea of what the Messiah was going to be. They didn't think he was going to be crucified, right? It must have seemed so pointless to them how much they had wasted those three years, right? Um, you know, grotesque, it, you know, it's, Jesus took upon all the evil of the world, right? A single drop of his blood would have cleansed all of us, but he gave us this like one red blood cell for all of us though. You know, he went so far beyond, right? Did he, did he need to do that? Um, so, you know, we, we, we see this, this, um, you know, Jesus is, is the, the answer here that this was not pointless. We know of the resurrection. We know that the fruit that that bears in our lives, right? So um, in this life, yeah, we, we see this small snippet, right? But if you think about like the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking along his followers and um, he, he kind of unfolds this much larger picture, right? Um, the prophecies that he's fulfilled, the, whole, the story of Israel and, and his death and his resurrection and the fulfillment of scripture, right? That someday uh, our eyes will be opened like those on the road to Emmaus. And we'll see all these sufferings in our lives that they have a, a greater purpose. Okay. Um, but is that still enough? No. I think to say that, you know, um, God was present to them and that was wonderful. But there's this wonderful uh, prologue to, to uh, 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, right? This um, tangible reality that Jesus is with us in, in body and in soul, right? That they could reach out and, and, and touch him. When we're suffering, we deeply desire Christ. <laughs> we want him to be present with us. Um, and I think, you know, just these wonderful examples that he is present with us. I think about going to Mass um, before coming here, right? The sacraments, the beauty of the sacraments is that God still touches us, right? Um, we think about things like, um, especially the Eucharist, right? In this very intimate way, God still touches us. In the anointing of the sick, God still touches us. He's there. He's present with us. He's present through his church. He's present through the body. He's present through community. 
He's present through my hands and the hands of the nurses. And he's there. He's with us when we suffer. And as we, you know, take part, when we receive the sacraments, it is like, it is food for the journey, right? It is preparing us for this hour. And we, in having the Holy Spirit, which is another gift, we have hope, we have faith, and we have charity. And we trust that God is sufficient in our suffering. Yeah, sure. So the, the question was, I'll try to repeat it for the audio recording, but yeah, how has the idea of like hylomorphism actually made a practical difference in my life and how I care for patients? And Yeah, I mentioned it some. So, you know, as a neurologist, it becomes difficult to not become a materialist, right? So... Um, like I said, when you see brain damage, you see mind damage. When you see uh, brain death, it's death of the person, right? And it becomes difficult to, if someone presents to me, for example, like the substance dualism, Cartesian dualism, it's very difficult for me to accept that, just given my experience as a neurologist. Um, so if the alternative, if the only alternative to that is materialism, then um, honestly, I'd be a terrible doctor. Um, if I just kind of see this mechanistic worldview, so if you think of like a mechanistic worldview, if you think about like a watch, um, not a digital watch, but like a real watch, uh, you're like, how does this watch work? How do the hands move? Well, you'd explain the movement of the hands by the cogwheels, and they say, well, how do the cogwheels work? Well, you'd explain that by some lesser material constituent, right? So you'd say this thing, and eventually you'd make your way all the way down to like subatomic particles, right? And, um, and then kind of coming back up, the, the smallest things determine the higher levels, and everything just kind of functions in this determin you know, deterministic way, right? Um, if that's the case, if like a mechanistic worldview is true, then we're just material things and we have no free will. Um, and I mean, I just, life just honestly would seem pointless to me. Um, I also don't think something like, um, it'd be hard for me to understand like the resurrection and all these things in Christianity in general. I just don't think materialism, although there are Christian materialists, I just don't think it works. So it seemed like when I was in medical school that that was this like predominant view. So I tried to think, you know, what, what else is there, right? I mean, this is depressing. This is terrible, right? Um, it's interesting. It's like the whole time I'm deliberating and everyone's deliberating. So like we're using free will, but we're denying that we have it. It's very strange, right? Um, so I, I discovered Aquinas' views actually just like two years ago, two and a half years ago. So I haven't been thinking about this all that long. Um, I went to a, a conference in, in Greenville that the Thomistic Institute put on and you know, listened to this, all, this stuff about hylomorphism. So I, I started reading about it and uh, saw it as an escape from materialism, and it made a lot more sense to me, right? It made so much more sense to me than materialism. Just for the reasons that I mentioned, and there's a lot more, materialism just seems false to me. Um, so then I could see someone as uh, the soul is just the form of the body, right? So it allows me as a physician to minister to the person's whole being, body and soul. Um, it allows me to appreciate that 
their soul is going to survive the death of their body, right? So even if the patient dies, I could still have a good outcome, <laughs> or there could still be a good outcome. Um, so it approaches my, you know, that also I think that um, when we talk about concepts like dignity and equality, obviously equality can't exist given materialism, right? I mean, no one has the same amount of atoms. There's no physical thing that we all share, right, that would give us equality. By definition, a, me a mechanistic worldview would give you inequality. And I don't see any way around that, right? So for all of these reasons, when I, when I look at a person, it's like I think of Matthew 25. And it's like, if I'm your doctor, do you want me to believe Matthew 25? Or do you want me to believe the me mechanistic worldview, right? Why would I ever counsel patients if I believed in the mechanistic worldview? Like, you need to stop smoking. Well, they, they have no free will. Of course they're not going to stop smoking, right? Um, I just wouldn't, there'd be no point in counseling people. Um, so anyways, I see these as, um, you know, just these, in, this incredible contrast of worldviews where I find one just empty and meaningless and the other just everything is full of meaning. Like, I think form is really beautiful too. So just the idea of like, um, just how God creates, right? Um, all sorts of things, like how in everything there's a trace of the Trinity. Um, not just in, in humans in, in particular, there's a resemblance, but there's a trace of the Trinity in everything in nature. And these, these uh, thoughts are so profoundly beautiful that they deeply move me, so. Um, anyways, uh, that's just like a little snippet. Yeah. Yeah, so in regards to like, and, and let me know when I'm done with this if I've answered your question properly. So you had mentioned like physician-assisted suicide, um, people as relations. And um, so I'll just kind of briefly kind of talk about those things. So in regards to like physician-assisted suicide, uh, that could be a whole lecture, but um, there are certain, in Catholic healthcare, there are certain ways in which we determine whether something is a good moral act, right? There are certain steps that we go through. Um, but, and, and we apply certain principles as well. So um, one principle in Catholic healthcare is that it's always wrong everywhere and always to take an innocent human life, right? That's a pretty good rule, I think. Um, I, it's surprising to me that people like disagree with this, um, but it's always wrong everywhere and always to take a human life, an innocent human life, right? Um, so that's uh, one issue that I have with physician-assisted suicide. Another is that, you know, when I became a doctor and I gave an oath, that was included, that I wouldn't kill patients, right? Um, or uh, participate in some way in killing a patient. Um, and I actually believe the oath that I said as a doctor, and it is a vocation, and it would be a deep violation of my vocation to ever participate or recommend physician-assisted suicide. Um, in my experience with patients who have requested this, it has never in my experience been from pain. It has always been from loneliness, a lack of relation. You know, when I talk to patients about this, I don't even have to mention it. It's just like, 
it, I don't have to address it specifically. I just sit down and talk to them as a human being. I talk about their family. I talk about their relationships with family that most, many of them are estranged from family. I talk about the prospect of, um, you know, reaching out to family. And this often is enough <laughs> just to convince someone that they shouldn't participate in physician-assisted suicide. But what I see most is a, a, a sense of loneliness, a sense of loss of dignity. They think that they've lost their dignity because their dignity is, uh, is tied to their capacities and functions. So I try to remind them that their dignity is not tied to those things, that what their dignity is tied to is being created in the image of God. So I, I try to counsel them on that. And, um, you know, typically it's actually quite satisfying. Um, so... Yeah, I think those are the, the major things in regards to um, our relation to things. Um, we do lose relationships in our life. Um, you know, of course, people die, people disown us, um, whatever else may happen. But you're always a relational being, so it can't be lost, right? So uh, because we're created in the image of God, right? So God is a relation of three persons, so like in the Trinity... You have, like, God um, who has a perfect knowledge of himself, and uh, he's all-powerful, and, and God, in his knowledge of himself, can produce a perfect image of himself, which we call God the Son. And then God the Father and God the Son, there's a love between them, and then from that proceeds forth the Holy Spirit. And um, so there's this, the Trinity is relational, and then when we say we're created in the image of God, we're created in the image of the whole Trinity. Um, and that entails that relational aspect. So no matter what someone's capacities are, they would still kind of maintain that relational nature, if that makes sense. So there's many other things to say about physician-assisted suicide. I, I, I debated it when I was a resident against a lawyer. Um, so there, you know, and there's a lot of points there, um, a lot of difficult situations that you have to... Um, kind of walk through, but just as like general principles. It's just never a good idea to cure the disease by killing the patient. Um, yeah, th so through conception, and then after death, um, the person, uh, strictly speaking, does not survive the death uh, of their body. Their soul survives the death of their body, and then they're fully made alive again in the resurrection uh, would be kind of my understanding, which I'm glad to be corrected on. Uh, in regards to pain, um, yeah, it's like maybe like the fifth. Uh, there's actually surveys on this. Um, but um, I would say that that's not a good reason because of things like the doctrine of double effect, where if someone's in excruciating pain, it actually is permissible in Catholic healthcare to aggressively treat their pain, which actually will shorten their life. Like if, you, if someone's in tremendous pain, and you're giving them morphine and Ativan, it decreases one's respirations and they will pass sooner. So you can actually limit someone's pain. Um, Is that a rational choice for the patient? Um, you know, sometimes it just depends if the patient is in, it depends if they've expressed their wishes prior to, it depends what state they've come into the hospital with. Many times these things fall upon the family to make these decisions, but I think there's this impression, like in healthcare, it's just like people are in agony and pain. But like palliative care does a really good job at treating pain, even to the extent that it may shorten someone's life.
But the idea is the intent, the intent is to relieve pain. As an unintended but foreseen consequence, it shortens or hastens life. But that's not the intention and therefore it's permissible. So that would be Aquinas' kind of doctrine of double effect, which is used in healthcare frequently. And that's why I also think physician-assisted suicide is unnecessary. We can adequately treat pain and anxiety. Um, we really can. Palliative care has advanced like other fields. Um, so it, that intention to kill just doesn't need to be there. If you have a strong intention to kill or to, to, to kind of alleviate pain, that can hasten death, but it just can't be the intention. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.